I know a lot of people think it's crazy. And I said, I tell people in my story that just through God's help and grace, I, he's given me the ability um, to forgive all of these people. And I, I had to do that. I'm just speaking from my personal experience. I'm not telling anybody else what they need to do, but I heard one time that, that unforgiveness is a poison you drank thinking it's going to poison the other person. I really think, and in, in, I know personal experience, unforgiveness was really killing me and tearing mm-hmm. me up. And, um, you know, I had to do that. I had to forgive in order to be able to move on. This is episode 119 with Kim Llewellyn. You're listening to American Snippets, the all-American podcast for those looking to dream bigger, live better, and make an impact. What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to the show. Once again, my name is Dave Brown. I'm here with my co-host, Barbara Allen, and we have another incredible guest for you here today. Again, her name is Kim Llewellyn. Kim was just 13 years old when she started competing in national swim meets. The young athlete was poised for some of the best years of her life, but within the year, her optimism and happiness would be stolen from her when she was sexually assaulted by a fellow athlete. As Kim's athletic career rose all the way to the 1984 Olympics, the sexual assaults continued at the hands of several fellow athletes from some of this country's top teams. Kim kept the abuse secret, and things spiraled downward into anorexia, bulimia, and alcohol as her stress grew. It took her decades to confront her pain, and now Kim is using her story to teach important lessons in resilience, achieving success, and to raise awareness about abuse among the community of professional athletes. So without further ado, here is Barbara Allen with Kim Llewellyn. You're listening to the American Snippets Podcast. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of American Snippets. I'm your co-host, Barb Allen. Very excited to be sitting down today with Kim Lou Allen, who is not only an Olympic athlete, an American record holder, a national champion, but she is just a kind, sweet human being. And her story goes well beyond. Not only does she have a story and insight to share about what it takes to train and discipline and grow and compete at that such high extreme level, She has a story of resilience beyond that as well, a story that took her decades to tell, a story that pushed her perhaps even beyond the the capacity that she even thought she had and took certainly as much endurance as those professional sports did to overcome and get through and how she is using the culmination of all of those experiences, good and bad, for a greater good now is truly extraordinary. So I want you listening here to take a moment, really set aside what you're doing, listen to the story, listen to the message Kim has, because if you are pushing to reach a goal and struggling to achieve it, she's got a message for you. If you are struggling with something from the past or from the present moment right now that you are so overwhelmed with and don't have a clue how to get through, how to find help, how to find support for Kim has that answer for you. So sit back, listen in, and a big thank you to Kim for taking time to be with us today. Oh, thank you so much, Barb. It's an honor to be here. Yay. So <laughs> let's get started first. We'll go uh, you know, into the fun stuff. Talk for a minute. I want to start here at this moment. 
talk here for a second about what does it feel like to walk into an arena for the opening ceremony of the Olympics as an athlete on the Olympic team? At, how old were you at that moment? I was 18, 18, years, 18 old. years old. Yeah. So to be an 18 year old as an Olympic athlete walking into that arena for the opening ceremony, what does that feel like? Oh my goodness. You know, my Olympic dream started when I was 10 years old and I was actually a part of a swim team in Cincinnati, Ohio, and we were very, very blessed to have amazing swimmers from that team. And in 1976, I was watching the Olympics and we had several uh, swimmers from our swim team, um, the Cincinnati Marlin team that were competing. And so that's where my dream started. So from the time I was 10 until I was uh, well, in 1980, I tried out when I was 14 years old, and I missed it by four one hundredths of a second. <laughs> yeah, and um, and so from from there on, that's you know the training. I'm giving a little bit of a background because when I I finally made the team, and eight years after my dream started. They, uh, because we were the host team, the Olympics I was in was in Los Angeles. So, you know, you have the hometown advantage, you have the crowd pumped. And so we were outside the stadium and they keep the host team until the last team. And, And so we're outside, we hear the crowd getting fired up, right? And we're going through this tunnel. We start going through this tunnel. And as we got, we heard this USA. USA. And as we got closer to the opening, you know, when we came into the stadium, it was just this erupting of USA, you know, and everybody's uh, waving their flags and cheering. And, you know, it was just that dream of that little 10-year-old had and finally achieving it and being in, in our home country too. I mean, people said, weren't you bummed that you didn't get to go to another country? And I was like, no, because we had the hometown advantage. I didn't have to eat different food, you know, things like that. So it was just the most exciting moment. And we marched around. It was just, if that wasn't awesome enough, we, uh, when we stopped on this, uh, where we were in the stadium, the U.S. team stopped right where my parents were sitting. And my friend Bruce Hayes, who was one of my best friends back then, he was like, Kim, wouldn't it be weird if we saw your parents? And all of a sudden, I'm not kidding, right after he said that, he said, Kim, there are your parents. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, I was just crying and they're running down the, you know, down the steps. And it was just, it was just incredible. That's awesome. Awesome. So talk, you were 18 years old. And as you mentioned there, that was a long path to get to those Olympics. Your family, you have seven siblings. Yeah. Yeah. We were all swimmers. You all swim. Are you, uh, has anybody else taken it as far as you have in terms of? Well, all of, all of my, all of my uh, siblings were either national or junior national level swimmers. And, That's and, insane. Um, yeah, yeah. And I have two brothers, the two brothers who are the next. So I'm number seven. So number, number six and number five and six, yeah. <laughs> we'd all train together. And they, all three of us went to the Olympic trials in 1980. And oh my gosh you know, just missed it. And then in 1984, 
one of the hardest things for me was, even though I was excited, I made it, my other two brothers just missed it. And, you know, you have in the United States, you have that day. Yeah. In other countries, they select teams based on your performance, right, for that year. But the United States, they do a they do a trials and, you know, either you're on or you're not. You have that day. And so that's, that's frustrating for some because, you know, every once in a while you might be off a little bit. And so um, it was really tough seeing them not make it, but they were incredibly supportive. And I just, I have an amazing family. That's cool. Yeah. I remember 16 years old when I took my road test driving test on a completely lower level. Uh, I have a twin, (laughs) twin brother. And we rolled up to this driving test at the same time. And he took the test first, but this awful, unhappy woman who just screamed at him the whole time. So I'm standing there. He gets back. He gets out of the car. His face is white. And she's still just ranting on, saying nasty things about his driving. And he failed. She throws the paper. And then it's like, okay, now you get in the car, Barbie, right? And so so I, I passed and I got my license. But yeah, but I felt like bad and guilty for right. it was a happy day for me on a totally different level right a totally different <laughs> level. but I understand hey, it's all relative I, I understand <laughs> the tie to the siblings and how it's hard to celebrate something when someone you care about you know right. is right. upset and does it and certainly that's happened I think that happens in life throughout right like how do yeah. people deal with it when you all have goals and you're all looking for something and one person excels and you've probably seen it happen people you were close to hit some mark when you fell short and I know actually in throughout the course of your life and experience that has happened. So it's part of life. Yeah. I roll with it. Right. So you, from the time you were 14 and started competing, you racked up five times national championship levels. Mm -hmm. You had two silvers at the world championships, a bronze and gold at the Pan American games. You placed eighth in the Olympics and that's the year, obviously um, a big year for a lot of reasons. We'll go into your three time NCAA champion a bronze and gold at the World University Games for which you were the United States team captain. I mean, yeah. please. <laughs> <laughs> and that is from the age of 14 to like 18, right? Or 19. Like this is in the span of the years when a lot of girls are going through, or, or you are going through, you know, adolescence and a lot of girls right, are caught right. in high school and the drama and turmoil and all that. And so for a teenager to go to that level. Talk about the discipline. Um, I mean, maybe because your family did this as a unit, it was just sort of natural for you, like what you did, right? But it's not a super common thing for anybody at any stage of life to have that level of determination and, and discipline. So how did you all get that? Did you help each other? Did you root each other on? Oh, man. I, like I said, my family was just remarkable, really remarkable. And we, my parents were just trying to find a sport to keep us all out of trouble, right? So, so um, they put my oldest brother in, in the sport and then we just followed suit. And we did other things, but we usually came back to to the swimming. And um, I started actually swimming when I was about five, and I, I wasn't a very good swimmer when I started. Actually, when I tried out for the Cincinnati Marlins, um, they went to my mom and they said, they said, well, Mrs. Rodenball, uh, we're sorry, she's not quite ready for this team uh, at this point. And my mom 
you have to know my mom. She kind of looked at him. She said, well, I'm sorry to hear that. I think we'll probably have to take the rest of the kids off the team. And at the time there were six of them, <laughs> six of us. And I have to probably take them off and go to this other team because I can't do two different teams and I know they'll take her over there. So, and of course she knew what they were going to say, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. Mrs. Runball, we'll let her on the team. And then, yeah, so not very glamorous start. And I actually was disqualified for about two years in the, in the uh, stroke that I went to the Olympics in, which was breaststroke. And I just kept, you know, I just kept, I was fast and I'd touch the wall and they, and I'd be first, but then they'd say you're disqualified. <laughs> so for, what, for what purpose? My, my kick, just one of my feet, just were, it wasn't going out. So I was doing something, what they call a scissor kick. Okay. And so you get disqualified for that. I guess they think it's an advantage. Um, so, you know, I didn't start off doing very well. I was fast, but I had to learn how to, to do it properly. And I just had a really strong work ethic. You know, my parents are such hard workers. My dad was a doctor and worked all day and would come, you know, done with work and have to go up to the pool. He was president of our team. Um, I don't know how many times and he would come and work the meets. My mom would work the meets that she'd take us to practice. You know, just very, I was brought up in a very dedicated, very loving, very supportive family. So I was very blessed to have that. And so that really gave me, I, uh, I think that being modeled in the home was so important. And, uh, you know, my dad, they never put the pressure on us. They just said, whatever you do, just do your very best. And, and that's, I've taken that with me wherever I go. Doesn't matter what I'm doing, just to do my very best. And so just very simple, but, um, but you know, I just, I was just a very hard worker. I was very coachable. Um, I, I, I did everything I could do. And especially when I became 10, when I was 10 and I had that dream, that's when I just became hyper-focused and I was doing everything I could do training six hours a day sometimes, right, to, um, to achieve that goal. And so I was very goal-oriented. I set goals. You know, we had great coaches at the Cincinnati Marlins that helped us to set those goals and, and kind of have those steps in order to achieve each, each level that year and then the long-range goals. And so, you know, learned a lot of valuable lessons at a young age. Yeah, I'd say. What does that mean uh, to be very coachable? I listened. <laughs> I did what they told me to do. You know, I became a coach later and I was really uh, frustrated. I think there were a lot of kids, there were some kids that were wonderful. And, but I, it, it just, things have changed. I, I think that back then, um, and, it, and it was probably the family that I was in, I, I was taught to respect authority. And, um, and that was very important. And I, I listened, I did what they told me to do. I, I worked hard. Now that doesn't mean I didn't every once in a while when, especially when I was kicking freestyle, I wasn't very good at that. I'd cheat sometimes and kick breaststroke to catch up. <laughs> so I wasn't perfect, but, um, you know, it, I just, it, I just was coachable. I, I listened and I did what they told me to do. What is your advice for someone now who is on a team or being coached and frustrated and not getting the results or frustrated with their coach? And what would you say to them? 
Well, I, I think it's important to, it, it depends, right, on the situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully they have a good coach and know what they're doing. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, just if they have a good coach and they're just frustrated, just to trust in the process and believe in themselves and to not have any regrets, not have any regrets, just do everything you can to uh, have, to to train and to set those goals, to do everything you can. And so you don't look back and have regrets and then just trust in that. Um, and, and sometimes it's, it's a process, right? So some years are better than others. And, and, you know, for instance, when I first started, I mean, I started as getting disqualified for two years and I just, it, you know, it taught me something though. As a young kid, that taught me to keep going and keep fighting, and, and it, wor- it worked out in the end. So, um, you know, when I coached kids, a lot of kids, it's, it's the self-talk here. Um, I think we've got to take, uh, the Bible says, to take captive every thought um, unto the obedience of Christ. And I think this is our battleground up here. And so I would have a lot of kids saying, I'm too short, I'm, I'm this, I'm that, and I would always that I'm too short, I would, I would tell him, let me tell you about Ricardo Prado. And Ricardo Prado was this short, stocky, um, uh, 400 individual medley world record holder from Brazil. He didn't look like a swimmer. He didn't look like what you would picture, but he was incredible. And he, and so I, I think we've got to get outside of this and, do everything we can to, to tell ourselves positive, give ourselves positive messages. So. so that mindset is something that you didn't necessarily always have for a lot of years, right? You had, and that right. is a good time to go into this. We're going we're gonna to go down a little bit into the, the yeah. deeper challenges yeah. and then we'll come back up and, you know, the lessons learned from it. But that, what you're just talking about is something that you learned after years of struggling. Talk right. about the, the challenge when you walked into the Olympics and you placed eighth that year. Some people may have been watching and been like, oh, what's wrong? She didn't do anything. But right. for me, right. once you know the backstory and you understand what exactly, I don't even know how you walked into that arena given yeah. the condition you were in mentally, emotionally, physically uh, at the time. So talk about what people didn't see beyond the smile and beyond the eighth place. Right. So um, <clears throat> on the outside, I looked like I had it all together. I was a master at putting on the mask. Yeah. Um, and I was so afraid of people knowing what was on the inside. And what was on the inside was sexual abuse um, that I had gone through. The first actually time I got sexually abused was when I was six years old by a teenager in the neighborhood who liked to play doctor on me. And then the next time I was sexually abused was when I was 14 years old. It was right after the Olympic trials um, in 1980. And I was on my very first national team um, representing the United States. And I, we went to a international meet, um, in Hawaii and we were staying at the University of Hawaii and I was just taking a nap um, in my dorm room and I was uh, I woke up to one of the older swimmers um, sexually assaulting me and 
that was <clears throat> one of three swimmers that ended up sexually assaulting me. And I think because the first thing that happened to me, I was so young, yeah. I, I just kind of disassociated, mm -hmm. I think, a lot of what happened to me. I had so much shame. Um, I didn't really know how to quite deal with it. And so parts of me would shut down. Of course, it affects a child's brain in mm -hmm. so many ways. Um, but for me, I, I, my parents would say, why didn't you tell us? And I, don't, I can't answer that question other than I just couldn't. I, I just was so, uh, part of me didn't understand what was going on because, you know, when you're a six-year-old, you don't know what's going on, but it does create this very unsafe feeling um, that stayed with me for years. I, I lived in fear. Um, a lot of times I didn't know why, but after that happened in, in uh, 1980, I, I just kind of went on and I just kind of kept going and I put everything into my sport, but the one that's really team. confident. Yeah, on the same team as, yeah. the, as the teammates, as the boys really who assaulted you. And they're supposed right. to be well, teammates. I, right, right. And, and the next thing that happened to me, um, I was at uh, the World Championships in 1982 uh, representing the United States again. So, of course, my parents are trusting that I'm going to be safe, right? And I'm on this United States team and, and I'm, I, that was, the, yeah. yeah, yeah. And that was the meat of my life. I ended up getting two silver medals next to Uta Gwenegger, who was a steroid machine from East Germany back when there was East and West, right? Yeah. And actually years later, they were going to strip them of their medals and award us the gold. I'm like, well, that's not going to really do anything. It, it, it was taken away back then. But um, anyway, so I had just gotten two silver medals and we were all in uh, one of the other, uh, we all would stay in these, the, we stayed in this, uh, that, that I think we were staying in a, a hotel. And we're just staying on this. The boys and the girls, the guys and the girls are all on the same floor. And I don't know where the team managers were. They, they weren't around. They weren't uh, doing their job, I guess. I mean, I don't want to diss them, but right. I, I think, you know, we shouldn't have been doing either. We were in somebody's room and we were drinking. Right. And all of a sudden, everybody else was gone. And I was just with this, this other swimmer. And, you know, this was a swim these guys are, everybody looked up to, they're great guys, great swimmers. And, um, before I knew it, um, things started getting out of hand and, and I, I told him to stop and he didn't. And I was raped by, by the swimmer and I was a virgin at the time. So, oh, man. um, you know, that was stripped away from me and hmm. I was, you know, I know I was saying no, but then at, at some point I just froze. You right. know, of course, that's a lot of people freeze. Yeah. Either they, or they flee or they fight or they freeze. And I, at that point, I, I did say no. And then I just kind of froze. I was so, I couldn't believe it. Um, <clears throat> and then another, then I was 17. I, so each time these things happen, Barb, I started getting more and more out of control in my mind and my thoughts. I was still training six hours a day and training as hard as I could. 
um, doing everything I could do, but I started drinking. I wanted to escape. My my drinking actually started when I was about 12, believe it or not. Wow. wow. We lived in, in Cincinnati. It's a no offense to my Catholic friends, good Catholic folks. They like to drink. And so everybody thought we were Catholic. We just, because we had eight kids and my dad would just say, no, we're just passionate Presbyterians. (laughs) Anyway, um, but you know, that drinking started early and I learned that I liked it because I could escape, right? And so after each of these things happened to me, I would just escape even more. And then the worst thing that happened to me, even even above the, the rape was my, it was Olympic year. Here was the year that I've been waiting for. It was my senior in high school. And I was on a bus trip going to a swim meet and it was dark. It was at night. People were sleeping. And I was sitting next to like a brother figure. This is somebody that I had known since I was a little girl. And, and I woke up to him with his hands in my pants and he was sexually assaulting me. And I I tried to get his hand out. He wouldn't, he, he wouldn't even take it out. I mean, I literally, and I was, I couldn't believe it. And when that happened, and that was one of two things that he tried that year. Um, I, I just, I, my trust, any trust that I had left was gone. Yeah. It was gone. And my, any kind of confidence I had was stripped. I mean, so much when people are sexually abused, it just strips them of their dignity, their confidence. Um, um, you know, it leads to so many things, substance abuse. It can lead to crime. It can lead to yeah. eating disorders, which something that so happened that year, I, I started an eating disorder that year. Yeah. So that was my Olympic year. And I was trying to be a happy senior in high school, going to homecoming yeah. and going to prom and trying to train and doing all this stuff. And on the inside, I was dying, dying. Literally, I was dying. I wasn't, I was either not eating at school or I would eat what my mom would, would make and I would throw it up. So I had a combination of anorexia and bulimia on top of training six hours a day. And so the fact that later that year with, and, and having to see my abuser every day, twice yeah. a day, um, the fact that I ended up making the Olympic team, there's no reason I should have made it. I, I've told people, I believe God allowed me to make that for a much bigger purpose. I wouldn't be sitting here with you today sharing my story. I, I don't believe unless if I wasn't an Olympian, you know, that's given me a platform to be able to speak. It was so much more than that, that 10 year old's dream. Yeah. It, it was, it was about, you know, giving hope and sharing the hope that I now have. It took a long time to get here, but I really have seen how God has always used that. Even before I got well, um, he used that to be able to motivate kids and, even though I may not have had it necessarily in my in me, God still used it. And so, anyway. Do you know if any other female swimmers on your team at the same time you were, I mean, were you the one that they targeted to your knowledge? Or do you know it was this like rampant among the team? Not that it matters um, to you individually, you know, but just. I don't know. You know, this, this was 
yeah. what, back in 1983 when this happened on yeah. my swim team and then 1980 on the, and 1982. And so I'm just now talking about it. Right. Um, I, I don't know who else they yeah. might have assaulted. Um, it's crazy to think about. I right? know. It's crazy to think you could all be sitting next to each other carrying this enormous yeah. burden right. and afraid to speak. Right. So now what you're doing is trying to get this message out in the thoughts, thinking that maybe there are other athletes experiencing the same thing. And certainly this isn't, you know, exclusively for athletes or a lot of people, but your particular experiences with athletes and the high pressure and with right. somebody you're on the same team with, um, you know, and you have to face and deal with. And so now you're coming out with what happened to you now that you've reached a very hard earned place of healing and faith right. and, a, and right. a new life and a right. new and perspective on things. And so now you're using it to send this message out and share your story so people can understand that, hey, if this is happening to me or has happened to me, you know, here, here's some help for you and here's an example of how to get through it. So do you know, um, you recently shared your story right. on another platform and I've had a huge response. From that. So you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. So um, I, I kind of give you a little bit of a background. About, about a year ago, um, I felt led to finally share my story. And I reached out to Nancy Hogshead Makar, who I mentioned in my article. And um, she was uh, on the 1984 Olympic team with me and was just, she's just amazing. She became a civil rights attorney and she has her own story of, of abuse and it's public. So um, she doesn't mind me. Right. She was actually raped at Duke University. Um, but fortunately she was able to tell that's huge, right? Yes, because right. when we tell their the healing begins, yes. it's when we're silent and, and things stay in the darkness that all of these things fester. And, um, and I'll get to that in a second. But she was able to get help. And she, after school, became a civil rights attorney. And I had, I had followed her. And I was just so impressed with everything that she's done. And she started representing athletes. And she was really frustrated at what was going on in the Olympic Committee movement. Um, basically, the Olympic Committee was just saying it wasn't their job to, to represent or take care of these athletes. It was the parents or the swim team or the police. And so she started writing um, this, she was a part of writing the original draft of, of Safe Sport, which became a legislation just in, in 2018. She started writing that in like 2000, I think 12. And she had represented just in the sport alone at that point, 14 swimmers who had been sexually abused and nothing oh. was happening. Nothing yeah. was happening in the United States swimming, the Olympic Committee. Nobody was doing anything about it. People weren't losing their jobs. And, and so anyway, it was just really frustrating. Well, then, as a lot of people know, the, Olympia, the gymnasts came out with their story about um, Dr. Nasser, who had sexually abused in it. It's what was needed. Yeah. You know, all these voices came forward, and it's really what... Um, was needed in order to for Congress to go to wake up and go. Wow, we need to do something about this. So, so 
they started a, a safe sport um, um, it, there's actually a legislative act that did make the Olympic Committee um, um, responsible and uh, among other things. So I've been following Nancy and I knew I prayed about it and God just kept saying, you need to share your story with Nancy. And, and the thing that was really motivating me was I was reading all these articles about um, the gymnasts who were abused yes. by the doctor and um, people who were being uh, swimmers or other athletes who are be, being abused by their coaches, but not a lot of athlete on athlete. And so I just felt a burden to share my voice to, you know, hopefully, um, you know, help others to give them their voice. Um, and so, you know, it's like when we tell our story, it, it gives other people permission, right, to mm -hmm. tell theirs. So, um, I was just um, being silent. I prayed about it. And when I talked to Nancy, she said, you need to share your story. And so it took a little while. I still had to go through. I shared a little bit with a, somebody who was really close to me. Um, that allowed her to be able to come out and share her story and begin a healing process. That was even before I wrote the article. I started seeing the fruit, right, already of what I believe God was going to do with this. And so um, it took a little while. I had to go through a little bit more ministry and, and healing. And then it was like last summer, God was like, okay, it's time. And so I sat down, hadn't written anything since I was in, high, in college. So <laughs> it was, uh, it was, you know, definitely also part of my healing and, and the response has been crazy. Um, um, you know, I met you, Barb, because yeah. I just happened to sit next to a year ago next yeah. to um, Marie Cosgrove on a plane going back to Cincinnati. And as my husband, as I told you guys, my husband says there's no word in the Hebrew language for coincidence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I sat next to Marie a year ago. She shared her story. I shared mine. We stayed in touch. A year later, Marie invites me to come to her greater event, McAllen, Texas, yeah. and invites me to come, invites my husband, Nolan, and I to come to, um, to come to the VIP event. And that's where I got to meet you and Dave. And, and I got to meet uh, Morella Sula, who is the owner of, of Global Women Magazine. Yeah. And I shared my my story with her, and she she published it on her site, and that's how this has all started. So it's just been a God thing. He's just kind yeah. of moved, and and then after that, I posted on my Facebook, and uh, Nancy posted on hers. I've had hundreds and hundreds of comments um, thanking me for sharing my story. It's given other people hope. I've gotten lots of private messages from people who some shared their story for the first time. I mean, it, it, incredible. Yeah. Parents saying they wanted, they're talking to their kids and coaches. I got to talk to my athletes. And I got this incredible uh, message from a woman in Australia who she said when she read my article, it crystallized her, her vision. She also has a story like mine and uh, wants me to join forces with her to be able to, awesome. to be a part of something that she, God's really put on her heart. So it, it's, it's amazing. I'm just excited. I've been praying God opened the doors you want open and close the ones you want closed. And yeah. so I'm just, my, my whole goal is to help people know they're not alone. Um, really 
really trying to get people out of the shame, uh, not just the, right. the people who have dealt with sexual abuse, really anything, any type of trauma. Um, society is really bad about shaming people and yeah. telling them, you know, trying to silence them. And I read a quote recently that was incredible. It said, 10 people who speak um, make more noise than 10,000 who remain silent. That's a good one. Yeah. I mean, it's so true. Yeah. You know, so. people are quick to kind of joke about um, speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational speakers, and something like I can get that, you know, there's, and it goes in cycles, you know, used to be a used car salesman, and then it's a defense attorney, and now motivational speakers right. and such are, are all kind of lumped in this category. But I think once you peel back the layers and you understand the drive of that person to do what they're doing, and not just the drive, but you understand the impact of what they're doing. For me, when I was, you know, I crashed after my husband was killed. I crashed after the acquittal. And then I didn't, every time I thought I couldn't crash again, I would crash again because yes. of something in my mindset. And it wasn't until I started tuning into the other people's stories mm -hmm. and learning from them. All right, here's somebody who's been through something. Because it's easy to believe, right, that nobody can understand what it's like to feel what you're feeling. Right. Nobody can understand to feel, to get to the point that you, you believe that nobody can understand what it's like to get to that point where you're literally sitting there moments away from ending your own life um, or, or doing something. But then when you find right. other people who have and they're strong enough to come out and tell their stories, you're like, oh my gosh, because all of a sudden it relieves you of feeling like you're this weakling, loser, horrible person. Yes. Right? So the yes. fact that you're coming out and doing this now in the arena that you're doing it in, and especially you're among the first, you know, to come talk about, you know, the athlete on athlete, I think is going to be huge and enormous. And I'm so glad that you're doing it and we get to be a little part, yeah. you know, of sharing it. I want to go a couple other quick questions. I know sure. the time is flying by. I know. <laughs> um, so it's crazy. We're going to have to have you back for like six other episodes. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, one part that I had read uh, is that the, the athlete who raped you ultimately apologized to you. Yes. That, um, you know, that was pretty remarkable. Um, I went... That was in 1982 when that yeah. happened. And in 1983, I went to the Pan American Games and we were on the same team together. And it, it you know, of course, I'm just like, it's swirling around in my brain. Yeah. And at some point we were alone together. And I just believe it was by God's design. I think God knew I could not handle any more at that point. And I needed a little bit of a relief. And I looked at him and I said, you raped me. And I think... I don't think he realized at that point, until that point, yeah. what he had done because we were drinking and I think because I froze and I stopped talking, I think, I don't know. I don't know. Other than he looked at me horrified and he said, I'm so sorry. And it was genuine. Yeah. It was genuine. Yeah. And, you know, things happen. And I, you know, that really... Unfortunately, the damage was done, right? right? But I think God did use that to lighten it just a little bit. And um, you know, I've—I know a lot of people think it's crazy, and I said I tell people in my story that just through God's help and grace, I, He's given me the ability 
um, to forgive all of these people. And I, I had to do that. I'm just speaking from my personal experience. I'm not telling anybody else what they need to do, but I heard one time that, that unforgiveness is a poison you drank thinking it's going to poison the other person. I really think, and in, in, I know personal experience, unforgiveness was really killing me and tearing me up. And, um, you know, I had to do that. I had to forgive in order to be able to move on. And people, I've gotten comments on Facebook, well, why haven't you uh, named your accusers? Well, all I can say is I prayed about it. And I think maybe it's out of God's protection. I don't have any evidence, right? This right, happened right, right. 30, 40 years ago. I could, who knows, I could get sued for defamation. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, that my point is, is to give other people hope. You know, I shared a lot of hard things in my story. Um, I, I went through addiction. I had to go, I, I had two suicidal attempts. Um, you know, it, it was killing me. It was yeah, literally, literally killing me. Killing and, um, and it was when I finally went to rehab, I woke up after my second suicide attempt and I woke up in, in the hospital, um, barely able to talk. And, um, and at that point I got into rehab. I was in rehab for 72 days and it was kind of slowly was how God, it was a real process. It took, you know, God kind of gave me that old Olympic attitude again. It was like, okay, I'm done. I'm going to do everything I can, you know, 90 meetings in 90 days after I got a rehab and and AA. And, you know, it took a, a, a team of my family and AA and my sponsor and friends and, um, now my now husband, um, you know, I was married for 24 years and unfortunately that was a pretty tumultuous, uh, won't get into all those details, yeah. but that also created a lot of mistrust and fear in my life because of things that happened in that marriage. Um, God finally gave me the courage to, to get out of that and to, um, to, to finally be able to begin that, that road of healing that he had for me all along. And, um, so it's been a journey. It's been hard, um, yeah, I bet. but it's, I but bet. it's, but I'm on the other side and I, I want to give people hope that with God, you can do all things. And, um, he's, uh, given me the strength to get through all this. And so anyway, um, yeah, I'm excited. Good. I'm going to, I'm, I'm not going to walk you through, you know, everything, but Again, right. I think this is important. The whole suicide awareness. Yes. Thing. Yes. If I can ask you, say the second attempt that you made, you said you woke up in the hospital. Can yes. You talk for a minute. Are you open to sharing quickly? The last thing before I let you go. Yeah. Um, who? How did you get to the hospital? I don't know. What were the circumstances? Because there are people yeah. in this situation who are listening that are maybe yes. thinking about this, like right today. You know. So, what was it from your attempt? I don't know what the attempt was, or you know. But yeah. how did that? So I was in manic depressive state and I was, you know, once again, it's, it's what's going on in our brain up here. I was believing, um, I was believing lies. I believe it's evil. (laughs) You know, I believe there's good and evil. I believe there's God, there's a devil. And I believe, you know, that's what I believe personally, but I was believing lies that I, everybody would be better off without me because I was so depressed at that point. I was deep into alcoholism. Um, <clears throat> and so one day I woke up, it was almost like I was, <clears throat> like I was a, you know, just like a puppet. I mean, just was in that just absolute dark manic state of 
I can't do this anymore. I don't think anybody really, I, I did not, that wasn't me. I did not no. want to commit suicide. I just didn't know how to live. You wanted any, the pain to stop. Yeah. I just wanted the pain to stop. And I knew where I was going. I believed I had faith, even a mustard side. I have this little thing that I wear. There's a little mustard seed mm -hmm. on here somewhere and a lot of other things that are important to me. And I believe I had that mustard seed size faith that can move mountains. But um, I, I knew where I, I just wanted to go home. What I just wanted to go home to heaven. That's, you know, it was just, I was so messed up in my thinking and that's obviously was not God's intention. Right. So I, I started, I was drinking from a very early, early that day. And then I just started taking prescription medicine and, um, <clears throat> I got into, it was like 10 at night. My current, my then husband was gone. We were not doing well at all. Um, he wasn't out of the house, but he was gone on a trip. Um, I had two kids asleep upstairs and I got into my car and I just mm. turned the car on. I, I was doing everything I could do. And then all of a sudden I heard a voice say, you don't want to die. And I believe it was God. You don't want to die. You don't want to die. And all of a sudden it became my voice. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And I looked down in my haze and I have my phone. And my neighbor across the street's number is right there. I mean, it was a miracle. Like, oh, I don't even wow. know when I called her last. All I did was push the number. And they were these ranchers that always went to bed early and mm -hmm. up early to rise. And, and she just happened. Of course, this is not a coincidence, right? right. Up at midnight shelling peanuts at her window mm. that faced my, the oh my garage goodness. door. Wow. And she hears me saying, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And it was Barbara that literally saved my life wow. and came over and called it. And that the last thing I remember was Barbara saying, Kim, Kim. And I woke up the next day. And so, you know, to anybody out there who is suicidal, I understand what they're going through. It's a very, very dark state. A lot of people think it's selfish. Um, I don't agree with that. I, people don't understand unless you've been there. It's a very, very dark, very, uh, for me, I was incredibly manic and depressed and um, believing lies. And so I don't think most really, if they really, true self really would want to die, right? It's believing yeah. the lies. So, yeah. Anyway. Well, thank you for, for yeah. sharing that. I'm sorry to take you back, but I'm glad you did. No, that's right. I think you've touched on so many things that are going to reach so many people. And I hope you just continue yeah. telling your story. I think your story is so multi-layered. You could just really yeah. peel it apart and peel it apart and, and do that. And so thank you for having yeah. me do that. And I mean, and so awesome, the success you've achieved. And now you're, you're heading into a whole new path. That yeah, I'm excited. To be, uh, you know, equally impressive, if not, you know, even more so because of, you know, how hard earned it was and what you've done. So thank you for trusting us to share yeah. your story and for introducing us to our community. We will absolutely be reaching back out to you to be, That'd be great. you know, another part of it again. If somebody um, wants to connect with you and share their story or sure. whatever, you're open to that. 
Absolutely. You can find me on Facebook um, at Kimberly Rodenball or Kim Rodenball Lou Allen. Um, you can private message me on there. That's probably the best way. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, okay. that'd be great. I'm still, I'm praying about what God wants me to do next. Yeah, I think, I'm, yeah, I feel like I'm probably going to start a nonprofit. Um, I'm still kind of praying into that. And, and I really want to work with, especially the United States swimming to yeah. hopefully change the culture, especially of some of these United States teams and just kind of how these young girls and older. Now there's some like 30 something year old men that are on these, right. not, and they're, the sport of swimming and all sports are filled with amazing people, but you know, there's, there's some bad apples. Just like in the bunch. anything. Yeah. Anything. The majority yeah. Of people are good, hardworking, honorable, yeah. and they, I feel that they need to be protected from the very few minority that are not. And that's, yes. No. For and Sharon stories. Yeah. yeah. Sharon stories. I just talked to my niece recently, who's a swimmer on a, the biggest YMCA in all of, uh, of the United States. And she said, they and they actually put safe sport into their um, swim team, but hearing my story, she said, you know, it's a lot more powerful to these kids to hear stories. Yes, it than, is, and that's when people connect. Yep. Yeah, and that's and what you're doing. You know, yeah. that's what you're doing. You're sharing people's stories of hope, and I think that people uh, connect with that. So that's that's what I'm hoping to do is to share my story with kids and with people um, to to give them hope. So awesome! Thank yeah. you so very much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. All right, there you have it, everyone. That wraps up another episode of American Snippets. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's show. I'd like to personally thank Kim Llewellyn for being here as well and sharing her story. If you got any value out of today's episode, you enjoyed this episode and Kim's story, please share this on social media and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Uh, iTunes reviews are really, really important for us. It's all that we ask of you each and every week is just to share what we're doing here with a friend and leave us a review on iTunes. iTunes reviews are very important in helping us grow our message and our mission and getting these incredible stories and incredible guests out there in front of more people. So we hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to learn more about Kim Llewellyn, check out the full article that we did on her um, as well. You can watch the video interview and you can do that all at americansnippets.com. Uh, don't forget we have the Great American Summit coming to Washington, D.C., April 17th and 18th. Join us. Join a thousand of the most proud, patriotic Americans, leaders, entrepreneurs, influencers, business owners, action takers, and high achievers in the country for a one-of-a-kind two-day live event that's going to help you fulfill your potential, strengthen your purpose, and help you double down on living your own American dream. So make sure you get there. Make sure you reserve your seat now. We have an early bird pricing. Tickets are up to 50% off. All you have to do is go to greatamericansummit.com to learn more and see the world-class speakers and performers we have attending who are going to be basically bringing the house down and empowering you to go out there to to pursue more out of life. And don't forget, net proceeds from the entire event all go towards charity that support our military families, our veterans, police, and first responders. So greatamericansummit.com, and we will see you next week. Now go out there and show the world how exceptional you truly are.